would like to present Mark Giordano's first class for the fall 2000 Portland Christadelphian Fraternal, Biblical Disputes of Authority. Hath God said? Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, it really is a pleasure for me to be here today. Um, I'd like to thank you all for taking the time to come from wherever you have to, uh, if we can, saturate ourselves in some of the principles that will help us clarify our faith. That's what we want to do today. I really appreciate your being here and um, hope that we have many, many things together that will fortify us as we, as we wait together for the second coming of Christ, which surely we all hope is just around the corner in this world's history. Is there really anything else besides that? That's what we're looking for. Let's turn for a moment to Jeremiah 17. You can see as you look at the uh, lead slide here that our subject is authority in dispute. But we're really talking about humanism. Oh, we're really talking about disputing authority. Well, we're really talking about both because they're the same thing. We're talking, we're, we're going to be trying to, to blow the whistle the whole time through all five of our studies on the deceptive aspect. Those things that come about in our own hearts and minds as a result of the deception of humanism on faith. You know what deception is. Deception is something that fools you and you don't know it. You couldn't tell. You thought, well, I thought we were right. But we weren't. I wasn't. I felt surely this has to be true in my heart, but my heart had deceived me. That's the way deception works. It seems so right, but it's not, because God's word has been changed around. It's a very subtle thing. We'll be looking at how subtle it was in the operation of the lives of certain of those people about whom the Bible speaks in their interaction with God's will. Very, very deceptive. Do you know why the Lord loves you? Probably a lot of answers to that, some philosophical, some directly from Scripture. Oh, I know he loves me because he loves me. That's what he said in Deuteronomy 7. He loves me because he sent his son into the world. And his son died on the cross, and he loves me because of that. But personally, the Lord loves each of you, and I know this in this room, because your heart trusts in him. In the worst of the moments of the agony of our lives, your heart trusts in the Lord, and he loves you. He takes delight in that. That's what he says, but after he says something else in verse 5. Cursed be the man that trusts in man. 
and who makes flesh his arm and whose heart departs from the Lord almost as if it had been there at a point in time but now the flesh has taken over and because of that because trust has been diverted from God to man the heart departs from the Lord he shall be like the heath in the desert and shall not see when good comes and won't inhabit the parched places of the wilderness no doubt when they're turned and they blossom as a robe in a salt land and not inhabited blessed is the man that trusts in the Lord on the other hand whose hope the Lord is all his hope is in the Lord and that's the essence of faith isn't it it's the assurance of things hoped for the con conviction of all those things that you can't see but which Paul says in Romans 1 are clearly visible in the things that have been made so they're invisible but we can see them in the things that have been made and and those things all the evidence of God all the things that we know about him gives us those people who have faith in his word sufficient reason to believe the truth and to hope in him he says further in verse 9 the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked so there's a connection here there's a link between deceit which makes you think it's right but really it's wrong and desperate wickedness that's the connection we want to unveil as we go through these things because God says I the Lord search the heart and we know in Hebrews that that's an incision that divides joint and marrow that pierces our innermost parts this is the work of our high priest and the word of God which came to this world and shines a light on that dark heart so it no longer has the ability to deceive you and me so we want to take that word compare it to the deceptive influence of the heart of man in all these things that we'll be talking about in, in, the, in the five studies that we'll uh, share together this weekend and see if we can remove the deception by searching the heart it's a lot of searching in the subtleties of the way we think Paul tells us in Romans 1 that they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator in doing this what they did was they they set the authority of God and his son and his word in this world in a condition of dispute I said did God really say that or was it just people like you and me arcane historic people that were agricultural um, nomadic fishermen's sorts did God say that or did they say that religious fanatics well if God didn't say that then what we say is more important and they start this whole cycle of worshiping the creature rather than the creator when we look at at humanism let's understand from this start what humanism is it is a very basic influence in the heart of man that deceives us but it has a lot of different forms in this world it can be there in your mind and thoughts it can be there in school and it's also there in a very formal doctrine 
called humanism. If you haven't heard that, uh, let me tell you right now, humanism is a well-developed doctrine that has been formally developed since 1933, when the first humanist manifesto was written as a result of a couple of hundred years of philosophy that existed before that time. That's what humanism is, in theory. It's faith in man, directly opposed to faith in God. This is what the manifesto has claimed all along. No deity will save us, so we must save ourselves. Does everybody know why we can't do that? I'm just going to take a minute here to stand aside from the subject and speak in a very practical level about why we can't save ourselves. It's really very basic. If you think, well, there must be something in me that comes from outside the universe, something immortal, something that can't die, you might think possibly there's a way to save ourselves. If you have some kind of concept of some, it's called panspermia, where a seed floated in from another universe, another dimension, another galaxy, and several billion years ago landed on the earth and sprouted life in the ocean. And that's where we came from, because after all, as it turns out, we didn't have enough time in four and a half billion years for us to evolve the way we have with all the complexities and order and finely tuned adjustments and everything. Uh, if you think something like that, if you really don't have the, 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 the basic idea straight in your mind, and this isn't you, this is your friends, those people you want to draw into the truth, about the fact that you're part of the earth, you're dust, that's what you're made of, that's where you came from, being part of the earth, you're within a very closed system, and within that system, everything, including the universe, the Bible says, will wear out you yourself included, and by virtue of very definite, irrefutable laws that operate in this physical system, you have to die. So where's saving ourselves in a universe where, in a system where everything has to die? We can't save ourselves because we're made out of the earth, and the earth is a part of the physical construction of things. And the physical construction of things is cooling off. And all of it will eventually die. So we can't save ourselves. If this is it, we're doomed. It's that simple. It's a physical law. We can't get away from it. So I don't, I don't get this really. Uh, they're kind of missing the point and they, and they rely so heavily on physics and science and ignore it when they go making their doctrines. In practice, however, defiance of authority, humanism is defiance of authority on all levels. And that's where the deception comes in. It can come in to the family and make the father and the mother and the children think things that are just half wrong, that distort and pervert the whole concept that God had in mind when he designed the family as the basic unit of our, of our physical travel through our lives. But it's a very, very basic thing. It's so basic, in fact, that we're not talking about some group of scary people out there with PhDs yet, anyway. Right now, we're talking about something that exists in the heart of man that Jeremiah was referring to, something so basic that this is basically the lower level version of a humanist. A, a being who, when he comes into the world, immediately begins defying the authority of his parents. 
This is a perfect example of it. I don't want to be here. Get this diaper away from me. Pick me up. Feed me. And if you tell me to do something, my answer is resolutely no. As soon as we learn how to speak, we become humanists because we defy the authority of our parents. You don't think that changes, do you? That doesn't change. You get to be on the arranging board. It's the tendency is still there. You become, those of you who are younger, you, 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 you grow up and just before you've left home now, your parents are still trying to say, maybe you should think about this, maybe uh, watch out there. And you're still saying, hey, look, who gave you authority over me? After all, I'm grown up now, aren't I? And we get older and they're older brethren and sisters. Older sisters trying to teach the younger sisters to be sober and chaste. And everything they say, the sisters go, hey, I need this. You see how it works? It's, it's this stream of influence that comes straight out of the heart of man that causes us to defy authority on all levels starting, of course, as soon as we come into existence because it's the nature of the beast to defy authority. The way Paul understood it is very interesting. In Romans, this whole thing stands up as a series of very clearly identifiable characteristics in, a in the ungodly, deceived heart. Before I go any further, any further now, let me just pause here and alert you to something. I really love everybody in here, and I hope that we can agree, because if we agree, then we'll have the experience of fellowship that comes from unity of mind. But I can tell you right now, this subject is hot. This is, is in many ways a very hard to take. The harder it is for me to take, the more I like it because I feel like that's working on my heart. Just like Jesus was very hard for everybody to take in those days. He said some things and they went, cut that out. <laughs> don't say that. This is a hard subject and I don't, I try and like to stay off your toes, basically. But I can tell you right now, this subject is going to make some of you feel like I am on one or more of your toes. You'll feel it. So as we go, you, give yourself this litmus test. I say this right at the outset. Give yourself this test as we go. The more annoyed you are with me as a result of what I'm saying, the more you may have been duped by the influence of humanism. Because that would be the thing that would make you annoyed with me. If I start talking about this, well, you need to watch out for that or look out for this. And you go, stop it. Don't say that. That's not the way I want to construct things. Don't get off that. You sound legalistic. You sound pharisaic. You sound anything that I don't... Because I don't want you to be saying things like that. Listen to yourself. That's the way deception works. We're not aware of it until it takes over. And even then, it may be too late. Uh, what this is is a list of the way Paul described the condition of the Romans in their time. They were, we can't look at all of them, but he says uh, that they predominantly had a, a condition of ungodliness, the kind that we just read about in Jeremiah. Well, what Paul called ungodliness, the humanist calls reason and intelligence. You see the difference? Well, what's wrong with reason and intelligence? If it has no God in it, it's ungodly. And to God, that's wrong enough. There isn't any salvation in it, that's for sure. Look at this one. 
what Paul called vain imagination, the humanists called free thought. We should let our imaginations run wild. Who knows what good pleasure will come from it in the future or new device that we can plug in with the others on our counter. That's free thought. And we should be free to think. What Paul said when he said they exchanged God for images, we now call artistic freedom. Let's take the images, photographic especially, all those images we might be able to produce on the internet, and let's put that up there instead of God and worship the creature, especially the female creature, instead of God. Think of the images that the world has set up for us to worship. Dishonorable passion to Paul is now exuberant life. I mean, the better, the more dishonorable it is, the, the more passionate it is, the more exuberant it is to the humanists. They call shameless acts just things that consenting adults. Do you see the deception? Do you see how from God's point of view it's one thing in the human heart, it's something quite different? And do you see how they couch everything in terms that make you want to just accept it? It sounds right by virtue of the name that they use to identify it. What's wrong with consenting adults? I mean, isn't that what adults do? They consent about things. They have the authority instead of God. What Paul called covetousness, humanists call self-fulfillment. What he called haughty and boastful, they call self-actualization. And finally, those who approve uh, he said they approve those who do evil. These days, that's nothing more than toleration in disguise. You see? The one we want to look at as we go is that they changed the truth for a lie. That is to say that they said, well, that's your truth and this is mine and everybody has theirs. There's a different truth in India, another in China. In college, they have a truth. Uh, children that grow up who are abused have a truth. And everybody's got their own truth. It's called relativism. Uh, we want to just take a look at how that worked out. So, as we go, this is what we'll be talking about. In part one, authority disputed in Bible times. In part two, authority disputed in modern times. Part three, authority disputed in the believer. And we're going to move a little closer to home with every one of these. Part four, authority disputed in the ecclesia. And part five, authority disputed in the brotherhood. And once you get a handle on the way authority and dispute work, especially from a scriptural vantage, you realize how easy it is to be deceived by pride. That's really what we want to watch out for. As pride is at work, it's, it's sitting at the door like a lion waiting to get any one of us at any time, especially those of us who grow in maturity in the truth like Job did. We reach the point where we feel somehow it's that it's by the light of our countenance that men walk. And in that lies the worst deception of all. God looks at you and me and he says, where were you? Where were you? When I create, tell me if you have wisdom. We have no wisdom of our own, only what God puts in our hearts. So let's have a look at part one now. Notice as we go how the idea of questioning God's authority comes up over and over again. The phrase here, of course, is from Genesis 3. We all know it quite well. It's what the serpent said when he questioned God's authority, having set the law down in the garden, you will not eat of that tree. On the day that you eat thereof, you will surely die. And the serpent comes along and he kind of changes everything around. 
intrinsically questioning or disputing the authority of God. What we, I'm a little ahead of myself here, what we will look at, stay there in Genesis 3, we'll be returning there in a moment. Um, we'll be looking at Adam, if we have uh, time we'll get to the end of this list. We'll be looking at Cain and how in his life he said, did God say that? Nimrod? And the people he was working with said, did God say that? Solomon said, did God say that? Miriam said, did God say that? The priests of Israel said, did God say that? That's God said. The Pharisees in particular, every time Christ spoke, they said, hath God said? And you and I can say it too. From now on, if, if you get nothing else from the part one here, every time you hear yourself saying, did God say that exactly? Here in exhortation. Did God say that? Maybe he meant this. Well, in my, in my life, well, good thing Jesus died because even if God did say that and I'm not doing it, well, okay. You see? You see the way this, it just creeps in at every opportunity. So this is what we're looking at in the context of humanism. With Adam, it was autonomy and situational ethics. We'll be explaining this as we go. With Cain, it was self-serving worship. With Nimrod, it was equality with God. With Solomon, it was moral and cultural relativism. You are picking up how some of this may relate, how these terms, you'll understand. If you don't now, you'll understand when we get to it, what I mean by these things. Miriam, a little bit of feminism, not so much, but had to be something of the kind. And then there were other issues more serious than feminism. With Ezra, it was principle over people. Well, what does that mean? Didn't Jesus die on the cross for you and for me, and are we not people? I mean, is an ecclesia a thing larger than the individuals that, in it, that are in it, or a marriage? Is a marriage more important than the individuals that are in it, or is it made of individuals, and each one of them have rights and privileges and roles that have to be respected? You see how easily it is to start wondering about those kinds of things. In Ezra, it's very clear. And then finally, with the Son of God himself, God's word, plain as daylight, met in an assault by human reasoning. Let's look at Genesis 3 now. See how many of these we can get done. What time did we start? Okay, very good. Yeah, we'll get most of it. What we're going to look at here, what we're going to see is how the heart of man has disputed God's authority from the beginning. The serpent was more subtle than any of the beasts of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, yeah, he said, yeah, yeah, you can almost see him having a conversation. Did God say that? Almost as if, not so much he didn't say that, but did he mean that? Ye shall not eat of every tree in the garden. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the, fruit of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, 
you shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day that ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat. So you see how this whole, this whole situation that led to the first sin, which led to the, to, the, to the result that all those born from them are subject to the same laws uh, that they were subject to, and being mortal we die, every one of us, because the soul that sins shall die, and all souls sin, so all souls die. You see it there, this started the whole thing. What happened was that God's authority was questioned in verse 1. In verse 4, the serpent came up with this subtle way of deceiving Eve by saying, well, he made a relative truth situation out of it. He said, well, you know how God said this. Well, that was true to God, in effect. But what's true to you is you'll become like God. So he set up a condition where he kind of, kind of made two truths out of the situation. It was relative to your point of view. From God's point of view, it was this. Did God really say that? Maybe he meant this. Now they're looking at it from, he's looking at it from Eve's point of view. Maybe you would like all this. Maybe you'd like to be like God. So he made her believe that there was another truth in the garden there besides God's. And it was relative to their perspectives. And she fell for the idea. She thought, okay, well, my truth seems to be fair enough, according to the serpent. It was very appealing to her. Then what happens, he, he, he gave her an incentive. He said, you'll be like God. And he, 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 he delivered a, an idea into her mind through his subtlety that she would be autonomous. That is, she would rule herself. And how would that take place? Because if she partook of a tree that gave her the ability to know the difference between God, good and evil, then knowing good and evil, she would be able to make judgments about what was good and what was evil. Being able to make those judgments, she could decide for herself and rule herself. And in that way, she would be just like God, ruling over an understanding, ruling from science, you might say, from an understanding about the difference between good and evil. Self-rule. That's autonomy. And then he gave her a situational concept. There was situational ethics in the sense... What situational ethics is, for those of you who've never thought about the definition of that term, is that right and wrong is not something that comes from an absolute standard that came from God's law. Situational ethics says that if you're in a situation where it's loving to lie, somebody says, how do I look today? And they look horrible. You don't want to tell them that nothing goes. They're a mess. And their hair is messed up and they don't know it. But you care about the way they feel. So instead of saying, you look horrible, you, you love them and you say, you look great. You just lie. Well, you know, if you reason along natural lines, you say, well, that love seems to override, be the greater operator of the two principles here, and therefore loving is better than uh, telling the truth. And so lying is right when that happens. You see how that becomes a situational ethic? That goes everywhere. If you're abused, it's okay to shoot your parents, right? We learned that in the uh, Menendez case. That's the right way to pronounce that word. Everybody remembers it. If you're abused, well, there seems to be some justification in it. 
In their case, what the serpent said is, well, since the situation is it's good for food and God would never deny anyone food, would he? I mean, after all, that's what he put all this stuff in the garden for anyway. And it was pleasant to the eyes. It looks good. So does God not want us to enjoy things that are pleasant to the eyes? Brothers, does he not want us to when we turn our computers on? To enjoy beautiful things that are pleasant to the eyes, which are never satisfied? Hear the voice of the serpent trying to deceive you. Desire to make one wise. I mean, after all, once we know good and evil, isn't that wisdom? Full of good judgment then, aren't we? You see? The situation sort of demanded that the law of God be set aside, be broken. And broken it was. And look at all the suffering that has come about as a result of that. The lie's still there. Just clipped this out of the paper not too long ago. Uh, I think it was actually a few years ago, but uh, that's still not too long by comparison to the time it's been from when this lie was originally uh, brought out in the Garden of Eden. This is some guy that came to the uh, uh, Association of Research and Enlightenment, the Edgar Casey Foundation, Dan and Brinkley, we don't die. I mean, how pitifully deceptive can all this be? It doesn't deceive us because we hope in the Lord. We know about the resurrection. We know about the dust. But what about the people who don't? There the serpent is trying to appeal to the, to the, to the sensuality, animal sensuality of everybody, to their wisdom, to the situational ethics, all this stuff to convince them that we don't lie. The serpent is still quite alive. And yet in a, in a gravestone in Maryland, we have this. Here lies the atheist Jonathan Doe, all dressed up and no place to go. So this is really the ultimate fate of the serpent, those people who with him tell that ridiculous lie that you're not really going to die. Still there. And that's why, uh, young people, if I could just take a minute... You know how Christadelphians, how your folks and, and at Bible schools every once in a while or, or pretty frequently when the truth is being talked about to your friends, the subject of the immortality of the soul comes up. And Christadelphians are all dust thou art and unto dust thou shalt return. Very important to remember how, how crucial it is to understand that we're going to die. Everything comes from that. The way we understand everything, including the sacrifice of Christ, comes from this basic idea that if you're mortal, you die. And it's true, you really do. Let's look at Cain, chapter 4, verse 1. This is the next story where human is... Abel, and Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in process of time, it came to, to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel, he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain and to his offering, he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth. He was angry. He really couldn't take this. And his countenance fell. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth? 
and why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. So God sets up a condition in Cain's mind and he's saying, read your heart. Take a look at what you're thinking. If you're doing well, will you not be accepted? And if not, sin is right there. Well, on first reading, you say, this is such a simple story. We know what happened. He was angry. The net result was he slew his brother and then he was cast uh, into a curse. But what's this really talking about here? You know, if you look at some passages closely, you see things you almost can't believe. This whole thing is about the offering. When you see that word offering, what comes to mind? Well, certain aspects of the law, right? There were offerings in the law. This whole sacrifice was about, in the law of Moses, was about offerings, right? You think a little further how they lost touch with the offerings and reinstituted them and, and they came in and out based on the relative faith of the kingdoms of Israel or the, 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 the kings as they came and went. And then right at the end of the Old Testament, you think the last thing God was talking about before the lights went out in Israel was the offering. They got the idea of the offering wrong. And out of that came all sorts of evil, hatred and evil. And then Jesus picks it up right up again in, in Matthew 5. As soon as he starts teaching everybody how to take that law, which was all God's righteousness, and write it upon our hearts, declaring not our righteousness like the Pharisees had done with obedience, but the righteousness of God. He talks about the offering, doesn't he? And in the context of anger, remember? Whoever's angry with his brother is in danger of hell of fire. But then he says a little further, and if you take your offering, your gift to the altar to make that offering, you have something against your brother, you go and leave your gift there and go and resolve it with your brother. So the word offering comes up over and over again. And where? With respect to the sacrifice. With respect to the table of the Lord, to the altar where before God we're trying to present our worship. And there it is right there in the Garden of Eden. The worship is no different. The principles are no different. I'll show you how. This is all about the offering, the whole conflict between Cain and Abel, the brothers in this ecclesia, the first ecclesia, was over the offering. And what's the offering always about? It's always about the bread and the wine, isn't it? The grain and the flagons of wine in the law, the fruit, the meat and the fruit in Malachi and the body and blood of the Lord in the whole of the New Testament. It's always about that. Is that here? Well, what's the difference between the two? Cain offered his offering from the grain of the earth. It was the bread. Abel offered the blood of an animal. The firstlings of his flock, and there they were, the grain and the blood, operating on, on their understanding of what happens and what was wrong with their understanding. How did this, how was Cain deceived? Why was this deceptive in the first place? How was it humanistic? It was like this. Cain dis disputed 
God's authority over specifying what would be acceptable to him. And therefore, he, ex he disputed acceptability. He said, if I offer God what I want to, it should be acceptable. Abel said, if I offer God what he wants me to, it will be acceptable. That was the difference. It was what the difference was between what Cain wanted and what God wanted, what human beings want, in other words, and what comes from heaven, what commands come down from heaven. Well, God didn't have respect for Cain's offering because his brother Abel had a more excellent sacrifice. And what made it more excellent? Cain understood the same thing, the sacri I mean, Abel understood the very same thing the sacrifice of Christ is supposed to help us understand. The animal flesh must die. The flesh has to be cut off. God said it to Abraham. He made it in every covenant. When that covenant is written upon your heart, through understanding the sacrifice of Christ, if we don't understand anything else, we understand this. We join with him in a death like his. And that means the flesh, the animal flesh in our hearts must die. Otherwise, we start thinking like Cain did. Well, that offering was okay, but I'll make another offering and use that offering as a substitute for me. Let good Jesus died so I don't have to. So you keep the animal alive and you offer him the earth. You try to present the earth to God. Things that produce are produced out of carnal existence, out of the earth, out of the, the grain of the earth. Cain kept the flesh alive. Abel killed it. The Lord didn't accept Cain's offering. He accepted Abel's because it was more excellent. So what happens in this dynamic? A lot of things come out of that. He was angry with his brother and that anger led to murder. The point is that self-serving worship led to the first murder. So we ought to think very seriously. How does this come down home to us? We come to the Ecclesia every Sunday to make an offering before God. What if the offering is self-serving? What if the offering is designed to cover us while in the background of our faith we're sinning against God, willfully thinking, well, David did so I can. The Lord Jesus Christ died so I don't have to. That's Cain's offering. You see how that works and you see how subtle it is? Without even realizing it, we're saying, well, I'll sin and grace will abound. And that all came from self-serving worship around the table of the Lord in the first offering, in the first ecclesia. Isn't it interesting how this stuff makes such strong parallels and how all kinds of hatred, brotherly hatred, proving that there's no love of God came from this. It's what John said, isn't it? You say you love God and you hate your brother. A man says that, he's a liar. And the, the truth, that thing we hold so close to our hearts, isn't even in you or me. When, because of self-serving worship, we hate our brother. Let's look at Nimrod in Genesis 10. Um, I have to decide here where would be the best place to read. Let's start um, at verse 2. 
The sons of Japheth were Gomer, Magog, Nadal, Jabin, Tubal, Meshech, Tyrus. Verse 6, the sons of Ham were Cush, Mizraim, Put, Canaan, and so on. Some pretty familiar names in there, especially Canaan and how you think, well, this is the man from whom the Canaanites came. And many of these, we recognize these as terms that show up again in Ezekiel 38 as describing uh, those hostile nations who, who actually stand up in, in the consolidation of the image of man in the last days and oppose the Lord Jesus Christ when he comes. And in verse 8, Cush began Nim, begat Nimrod and began to be a mighty one in the earth. And he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore, it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. And of course, we recognize that, that as being the origin, not only of confusion, but of something which developed into a great city by the name of Babylon. And, and Babylon kind of is, is works in the description of the, uh, the development of the image of man in a very vivid way in the book of Daniel to help us understand how it started with this, this concept and matured into Babylon, and Babylon is still there. We'll see that in a minute. In, a minute. Uh, in chapter 11, we read very briefly, the whole earth, beginning at verse 1, was of one language and one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east and they found a plain in the land of Shinar and dwelt there. They said one to another, go to, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had a brick and they had brick for stone and, and slime had they for mortar. And they said, go to, let us build a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven and let us make a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. This is very interesting because in this account is a microcosm of what we see formally pronounced and developed in the Humanist Manifesto 2000. What they're saying here is exactly the same thing that human beings are now using scientific naturalism and uh, many, many other uh, combined philosophies that have come to us over the centuries to make the same kind of proclamation against God and against his authority. And this is the way it works. From the kingdom, which was basically confusion or Babel, uh, we, uh, I think I've made these points already, we've seen uh, how in the early lineage that led to the develop to, the, to the, the idea, let's say, that we build this tower and establish this city and make this name and this authority and power um, came from all those people who began, who were, were, were specific personalities that later become this whole image of man that will go against Christ at the time of his second coming. They were heavily involved with the technology of the day. They said, you know, we can make a tower that goes straight up there. How high? Well, we can make it very high. We can probably get to heaven with it. And if not heaven, we'll let God know it's high enough because we want to rule ourselves, never mind the authority of God. And so they said, we want to build a city. In other words, the original word there kind of says, we want to make for ourselves our own kingdom. The top would reach to heaven. The top there doesn't mean the pinnacle of the tower. It means the ruler 
that rules over that kingdom would reach unto heaven. They said, let us make a name or let us establish our own authority. Again, the meaning of the word is, let us make an authority for ourselves in the world. In other words, they, they kind of framed an idea that was just like, parallel to, what God had already told Noah he intended to do with the world. That he would make a kingdom. That he would rule over that kingdom. And he would be the authority. The human goal is the same. To rule the world, same with one specific difference, to rule the world by man's authority instead of God's. You see how at the very root of this whole event is a fundamental disputing of God's authority. And God's response was this in Isaiah 14. No need to turn this one up. Prepare slaughter for his sons because of the guilt of their fathers, lest they rise and possess the earth and fill the face of the world with cities. I will rise up against them as I have planned, so it shall be. And as I have purposed, so it shall stand, that I will break the Assyrian or the mighty man. When you see the word Assyrian used in this kind of context, he's talking about Nimrod and all those like him who falsely think they can set up their own authority against the authority of God. I will break the mighty man in my land, that mighty man that relies on the reasoning of his own mind. This is the purpose that is purposed concerning the whole earth. All those Nimrods in this world will be weeded out and destroyed at the time of the second coming of Christ. They have no way to escape their accountability to God. And this is the hand, the power of authority that is stretched over all the nations. In other words, in this case, the real power, the real kingdom, the real rulership, the real authority belongs to God and God alone. And he's appointed his son to come and rule the judge the world in righteousness on that day that he's ordained. God's goal is to fill the earth with his glory, not Nimrod's. So you see how the clash, that you can't have both authorities to be present in the same world, ultimately. So what is that glory? There's a lot of ways to understand the glory. Psalm 24 raises the question, well, who is this king of glory? If the whole world is filled with the glory of God, what glory is that? The glory that Lord Jesus Christ referred to when he was thinking about the future, about the effects, the purpose, the reason behind his sacrifice, said the glory which thou hast given me, I have given to them, that is those people who would comprise his body, that they may be one, even as we are one. The glory of God is all comprehended in unity with God, which is the same thing as God manifestation going the other way. When God is manifested in us, we're one with him. And that brings glory to his name, even in a dark world, that the world might know that thou hast sent me. That unity glorifies God. It's the only way we can experience God manifestation at this point in the development of our faith, that we're one. That is, that the body of Christ must be unified under God's authority. And if it isn't, somewhere in the whole complex makeup of the problem, God's authority has been disputed. How do we know that? Because Jesus was perfectly one with his Father. And the reason he was, 
He never disputed his father's authority. These are not my words, they're my father's. No one was more submissive to the authority of God's voice than the Lord Jesus Christ. And it brought him together with his father and it brings his body together in the same unity. Then, in the final analysis, God's glory is unity with him manifested in everlasting life. When this wonderful company of hosts, of which the Lord Jesus Christ is the Lord, springs forth in righteousness from the ground, and God is glorified on the other side of the judgment by their immortalization, then they will cover the earth, and in the ultimate sense, so will everyone else who remains with righteous saints, and he will indeed be the Lord of hosts. This will unify the nations in the same way that the body is unified under God's authority. Well, a couple more minutes. Um, I think I'm just going to skip the next two. If you, if you can read quickly, let's just go through the points, because I want to talk about the last one more than these. In Solomon's case, he got to thinking that if he brought other cultures in, that then the do evil basically are good in the eyes of the Lord, and if we just marry them, they'll be, they'll, they'll be annexed into the whole hope complex and the Lord will be pleased. But Solomon was wrong. He couldn't have been more wrong. What made him fall to that kind of deception? It was an idea of moral relativism, that things are relative. So he exchanged the law for his own opinions and, and regarded his opinions over the law, that law that he had said so much about in his opening prayer. Uh, he had self-determination about right and wrong and self-fulfillment that overrode the precepts of his faith. They were the priorities in Solomon's mind. Ultimately, this worked itself out in Israel to lead all of Israel astray. And when it was, it was turned around in the priests, uh, by the priests in Nehemiah's time, they were cleansed, but only cleansed when they abandoned multiculturalism and moral relativism for the sake of God's law. This is an actual quote by a Christadelphian. I think God uses intermarriage with non-believers to preach the truth. That's cultural relativism. Uh, don't have time to talk about Miriam, so let me just skip this. She made fellow. I, I wish we did, but uh, she made fellowship an issue when she shouldn't have. But that really wasn't the issue. The issue was she thought she had, should have just as much say, just as she and Aaron should have just as much say and authority as Moses did. And they weren't afraid to speak against those whom Moses, in this case, whom God had delegated. Uh, just go by these. If you have a question about one of these, perhaps we can talk about them later, but that's okay. Let's look at Matthew 21 to conclude. This is an interesting story because in it the focus of everything that we've been saying 
is quite clear. It's just a very short little exchange that Jesus had with the Pharisees. And he said, when he had come into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came unto him and he, as he was teaching and said, by what authority? It was always an issue with them about where he thinks he gets his authority. Do you do these things? And who gave you this authority? And Jesus recognized that in this they were essentially disputing the authority of his father. And he answered and said unto them, I also will ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I in likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. Then he says this, the baptism of John, whence was it? From heaven or from men? And they reasoned with themselves and they said, if we say from heaven, he'll say unto us, why did you not then believe him? But if we say of men, we fear the people and all hold John to be a prophet. And they answered Jesus and said, they lied. They said, we can't tell. And he said to them, neither tell I you by what authority I do these things. These little exchanges are so marvelous because the Lord has absolute control over every aspect of the situation. And that's why they hated him. And where did he get that control? Because he had absolute submission to his father's will and his word. And he was saturated in it. It affected everything he thought and understood. And with that, he was able to use the fallibility of words perfectly and stop them in their reasoning. He could shut human reasoning down like no other and has the same effect on you and I, hopefully. In simple form, if we go over this again, the dispute was heaven or men, the, cre the creator or the creature. Where is the authority? You see how it comes up over again, they, over and over again, they looked at the Lord Jesus Christ and they said, did God say that? And he said over and over and over again, these are not my words, these are the words of my father. I bear witness to my father. This is the testimony of my father. Over and over and over again, Jesus says this. And every time he does, human reasoning says, just like the serpent, their father, the devil, he said, did God say that? Where really is the authority? They didn't know because they wanted the authority themselves. That's why they couldn't say where it was. In both cases, they had to say that authority rests with God and therefore it was present in his son. God's authority was there in the words of Jesus. And Jesus knew if they didn't recognize John, like if they didn't, wouldn't listen to Moses, that they wouldn't recognize the son of God. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling, and to present you without blemish before the presence of his glory with rejoicing to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.